Okay, good morning. My name is Gary Greenstein. I am a partner with the law firm of Wilson, Sansini, Goodrich, and Rosati. And this is now the, I don't know, fourth, fifth, or sixth year that we're doing hot topics in music law. How many of you have attended one of these sessions in the past? So that's probably, what, 30% of the room? So for those that have not been here, I need to start off by saying anything that is said in this room by any of these panelists cannot be attributed to any of these panelists. Uh, if you try to attribute something to any of these panelists under penalty of death, uh, we will track you down. So when people are speaking, they're speaking in their individual capacity. If they're at a company, they're not speaking on behalf of their company. If they work at a law firm, they are not speaking on behalf of any of their clients. So that includes me as well. Uh, the panelists today, I will start, I was going to do it alphabetically because that's the way I organize, but I will go in order from left to right. So we have Christiane Cargill, is it Kinney? Kinney. Uh, a partner at LeClaire Ryan and also a musician. And contrary to a lot of people, I deal with, she's actually on both sides. So she deals and represents rights owners as well as technology companies and so licensees and licensors. Uh, immediately, immediately to the left of Christiane is Steve Benet, the general counsel of Pandora. And then uh, Joe Wetzel next to him, a partner at King & Spaulding. Uh, let me first say that Pandora is a client of mine, so if I go soft on Steve, you know in advance why. Uh, uh, Joe is also outside counsel to Pandora on certain issues, so I work closely with Joe, but Joe is a partner representing lots of technology companies doing lots of work in the music licensing space. And David Ring, finally, last but not least, uh, I don't know how, to, how David wants to be characterized. He is a lawyer, consultant, advisor uh, to lots of technology companies, and he is also a veteran of Universal Music Group for, I think it's 18 years? 19 years. Hello. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive in. If you have the urgent need to ask a question, raise your hand. But otherwise, I do try to leave time at the end uh, for you to ask questions. And there's usually a microphone that someone will walk around. It's a small enough room, though, to shout out a question. Please state your name and if you're affiliated with a company. And we won't attribute what you say to your company, but just help us out. <laughs> So the first topic we're going to talk about, the PROs and the Department of Justice's review of the consent decrees governing ASCAP and BMI. So how many of you are aware of the consent decrees that govern ASCAP and BMI? Okay, so not everybody. So why don't we level set for a minute. Uh, and a consent decree is an agreement between the between two parties, in this case it's between the United States Department of Justice and each of ASCAP and BMI, which are PROs, performing rights organizations. And those agreements restrict certain behavior by those organizations. Joe, can you just give a couple of high-level points about what the consent decrees uh, permit and restrict in terms of ASCAP and BMI? Sure. Um, a couple of the key points are that um, they restrict the, the rights that the PROs are authorized to, to license. Um, so in the case of ASCAP and BMI, um, they, they restrict them to licensing only public performance rights. Um, in, the, in the case of ASCAP and BMI also, they, 
grant immediate access to the repertories. You only need to write an application for a license and you're immediately licensed to use the works subject to later negotiations and potentially a rate proceeding. Um, the, the rate proceeding provision is that if ASCAP or BMI and a licensee can agree on what a reasonable fee is, then there's um, a judge each for ASCAP and BMI in the Southern District of New York who will have a full trial, a full court proceeding to set a reasonable fee for the license that's been requested. Um, so, so these protections are, are kind of in place to, to prevent ASCAP and BMI from leveraging the, the market power that they accumulate by having so many copyrighted works in their repertories. Now, Steve, Pandora was kind of the, maybe the father of some of the consent decree review process by DOJ. We'll give Pandora some credit for that. Uh, Pandora was involved in litigations with ASCAP and BMI, and there were uh, procedural issues that came out of that with partial withdrawals and then determinations, publishers reacting to that. Can you give a little bit of a background of what happened in the litigations that then led to the department's review of the decrees? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, the, you know, we had been um, deeply embroiled in uh, rate court proceedings with both ASCAP and BMI. And uh, during that time, uh, the uh, ASCAP board uh, got the idea that perhaps um, it would be interesting if uh, publishers who were affiliated with ASCAP were able to uh, pull out of the collective uh, but only for the purposes of negotiating with uh, streaming services. Uh, they would still remain in the collective for the purposes of negotiating with lots of other music users um, like uh, restaurants and bars uh, and uh, radio stations and folks like that. But, uh, but uh, the publishers who felt that the, uh, the rate court proceedings and the rates that were being uh, delivered by the rate courts uh, were not keeping up with the value of the music that they were licensing um, thought that they could do better uh, by licensing directly with uh, with the streaming services. So uh, the ASCAP board changed its uh, rules uh, and they allowed <coughs> publishers to what they call partially withdraw, uh, which is exactly to withdraw for the purposes of negotiating directly with streaming services. Um, so not only did, uh, did uh, certain uh, publishers do this uh, from ASCAP, but uh, they did it from BMI as well. Uh, and the, uh, during our rate proceedings, the, uh, uh, this issue came up before each of the rate courts uh, because we were in simultaneous rate proceedings with ASCAP and with BMI. Uh, and the judges in each of those two uh, took different tacks. Uh, so Judge Cote, who was in charge of the ASCAP proceedings, said essentially, no, you can't do that. Um, and uh, that decision um, was carried through in her, rate court, her eventual rate court decision and went up for appeal and was affirmed uh, by the Second Circuit. Uh, so she just invalidated the right of the, um, the publishers to pull out of ASCAP for that uh, limited purpose. Uh, Judge Stanton um, also ruled on the issue in our rate court proceeding and he took a different tack. Um, and his tack was to say that uh, if the publishers tried to withdraw for a limited purpose, um, you had to be either all in or all out, and so withdrawal was permitted within the consent decree framework, but if you tried to partially withdraw, that essentially turned it into a full withdrawal. Uh, and so that actually became the, uh, the, AS, uh, sorry, the BMI state of play uh, throughout the rest of our rate court proceeding, um, which uh, was not appealed because uh, by the time the appeal was coming up, we had reached deals with both of those uh, entities. 
So um, there was a, a somewhat unanswered question around this. Uh, and when, the, when Judge Cote decided that the, uh, uh, the publishers could not withdraw from ASCAP for the purpose of uh, negotiating with streaming services, the uh, publishers went directly to the DOJ and asked them to uh, either reinterpret or amend the consent decrees to allow them to do it specifically since uh, Judge Cote had already ruled that it couldn't be done under the current consent decree language. So the Department of Justice undertook this review that lasted approximately two and a half years. One of the issues that arose fairly late in the process is the question of split works or fractional licensing or 100% licensing. Christiane, can you explain uh, for the audience what is meant by those terms, fractional licensing or 100% licensing? Sure. So fractionalized licensing is, say, you have a song and everybody's writing by committee, so you have, you know, every single person in the band and then other people that come to the play as publishers, and everybody's getting a piece of this songwriting uh, work. So as joint authors, um, each one often contracts with the other that one party cannot license um, anyone else's share. So there's a fractionalized licensing. They can take care of their own. The other songwriters take care of their pieces. And that way, there's open free market and, and fair trade. And everybody gets paid what but, they want to get paid. But that's so. not the default rule under copyright. It is not the default rule. So and we'll talk about what the DOJ did and what Stanton did. but. Um, the default under copyright law for joint works, if you don't have a contract between them, is that um, each writer can uh, license the whole of a song uh, without consent of the other uh, writers. And then they are obligated to provide an accounting to the songwriters. So the problem that I guess arises in the DOJ ruling uh, for the songwriters becomes, well, we've got these two entities that are bound by these very, very old consent decrees, and then we've got CSAC and others that are cropping up that were all about free trade and had some ability to negotiate, and suddenly um, their hands are tied because if, if the, you know, if Pandora can just go and say, hey, we want a license from the person that's going to make this the cheapest, then all of a sudden you have this monopoly where there's, there's no ability to negotiate a better rate. So there, there's been this claim, large, and just so you know, I've represented companies in this proceeding on the licensee side, so take whatever I say with a grain of salt. I will try to be uh, neutral. But there are allegations by publishers that this will result in a race to the bottom, that if you have the ability of one co-owner of a work or their agent, so ASCAP and BMI are agents for individual songwriters. So they can represent 50% of a work could be represented by ASCAP, 25% by BMI, and the remaining 25% hypothetically by CSAC. And if you go to ASCAP, you can get a license to use the entirety of the work. Publishers have, have alleged that this was not appropriate. There were extensive filings with the Department of Justice. You can read those pleadings. Joe, what did, what did DOJ say after this extensive two and a half year review? What was their initial finding? So in August of this year, the DOJ released a closing statement, and they notified both rate court judges of their, their findings. And their first conclusion was that no modification of the consent decrees was required. Um, I just want to address quickly the comment that they're old. That's definitely something that's been thrown around by the industry. Um, the ASCAP decree was last amended in 2001. 
and BMIs in 1994. So the rhetoric about them being from the 1940s and whatnot is is a bit overblown. Um, anyway, the, the, the DOJ evaluated this and, and decided that there was no modification required to allow for partial withdrawals. Um, and in part, they found that, that the issue of um, fractional licensing versus full work licensing um, was addressed in the decrees and that the decrees required each of ASCAP and BMI to grant full work licenses to the compositions that were in their repertories. Um, they found this for three reasons. They, they looked at the language in the decrees, which referred specifically to compositions and musical works. There was no, there was no language alluding to fractional, fractional interests or, or these agreements that, that Christian was referring to. Um, they referred to the historical practices of the PROs. Um, nowhere in their membership or affiliate agreements in the past was there any reference that what was being conveyed to ASCAP and BMI was a fractional interest. Nowhere in any ASCAP or BMI license was there an indication that they were conveying fractional licenses to their licensees. Um, and also, ASCAP and BMI are routinely out there in the world touting, you know, we've got 10.5 million compositions in our repertory, and if you have a BMI license or an ASCAP license, you get instant indemnified access to all of those works. Um, that, that statement is simply not true if you actually don't have the right to perform any of the works that are only fractionally controlled by BMI or ASCAP. Um, and then third, the DOJ said, hey, we're, we're the antitrust division and we're looking at this from a, from a policy perspective and the only way to maintain the pro-competitive benefits that, that the decrees are in place to protect um, is to require full work licensing. Otherwise, ASCAP and BMI are essentially just the equivalent of being you know, mega publishers with fractional interests. But the Copyright Office of the United States wrote a letter, almost 30 pages long, saying that DOJ, it, actually the Copyright Office letter came out before DOJ, and it said nothing in the consent decrees or copyright law more appropriately does not require this 100% um, licensing. I mean, is it the case that the Copyright Office is correct and the, the DOJ got it wrong, or why might there be tension between DOJ and the Copyright Office? Well, I think, um, for one, the Copyright Office was speaking to an issue of copyright law, whereas the DOJ was speaking to an issue of, of competition policy and a specific consent decree and the language of that decree. Uh, the, the DOJ's interpretation of that language doesn't upset the undergirding principles of copyright law and, and the contractual obligations that people may enter into. Um, I, I think the Copyright Office was wrong. I think they, were, they, they didn't grapple with an entire side of the argument. They just um, basically put out a, a statement articulating their, their position or their view, which was very pro-copyright owner. Um, one, one key example of that is that there, there's been one case that's addressed the issue of fractional licensing by PROs, and it found the opposite of what the Copyright Office concluded. It found the opposite of what Judge Stanton ultimately concluded, and that was the, um, the Buffalo Broadcasting case in 1993. Um, it involved the local television industry, and, and ASCAP basically took the position that said, hey, these guys are trying not to pay us for programs where they have a BMI license, um, and ASCAP is a co-owner of the works in, in those programs. And, and the court basically said, you know, in short, there is no legal basis to hold the broadcaster liable for fees to the ASCAP copyright owner because once a broadcaster has obtained a license from one of two joint copyright holders, he's immune from copyright liability to the other copyright holder. The, the Copyright Office letter 
deals with this in a footnote, and they say that this is a unique function of how licensing is done in the context of television. But the question before it was whether ASCAP or BMI had the right to give 100% licenses, and they took the position that they unequivocally did not. And it can't be that they have the right in some cases to do it and the right in other cases not to. It's a question of just how, you know, how the decrees are drafted and, and what they require to accomplish their, their concerns. So the Department of Justice conducts this review. The publishers had initiated the review wanting to get the right to partial withdrawal. This late issue of fractional licensing comes up. It's kind of a curveball. No one was expecting it. Lots of commentary. Department of Justice finds that ASCAP and BMI are required to grant 100% licenses. So if a work is in the repertoire of ASCAP or BMI, then if you take a license from ASCAP or BMI and that work is in there, you do not have to go to any other copyright owners to get a license. Publishers scream and complain. A lawsuit, uh, essentially not even a lawsuit is filed. BMI takes a certain step. Uh, and there are two rate court judges. There's a BMI rate court judge, there's an ASCAP rate court judge, they're both in the Southern District of New York. And Steve, what happened in that process? It was a little bit unusual. They, they filed a letter requesting permission to file a motion, and all of a sudden that leads to uh, not a full-blown hearing and briefing, but sort of a conference, and then a determination that kind of upsets the apple cart once again. Uh, yeah. That's, you, you did it right there. <laughs> um, the interesting thing is that uh, the, the, um, uh, about uh, a month or so ago, um, I guess when this all came down, um, I was sitting on a panel like this uh, in New York uh, where we were, folks were talking about the consent decrees uh, and the, uh, the folks representing the PROs um, were uh, you know, up in arms, uh, as you would expect, with uh, the decision of the of the Department of Justice uh, that came down. They knew that BMI and BMI referenced uh, on the panel that uh, that they had filed uh, a leave to bring this issue in front of uh, Judge Stanton, and they'd filed uh, a memo, and the Department of Justice had filed a counter memo, and then uh, they had uh, filed a, a response memo to that. Um, and quite unknown to the folks on that panel that morning. Um, within a couple of hours after that panel, Judge Stanton would uh, just summarily issue a ruling um, without uh, anything like, I mean, there was, there was a hearing, uh, a short hearing, right? Yep. Um, but uh, Judge Stanton moved right past a, um, official briefing and just said the, the DOJ got it wrong. Uh, and there's, uh, there's nothing in the consent decrees that says that uh, PROs are required to issue full work licenses, and if a PRO chooses to issue a fractional work license, then that is the PRO's prerogative. So you now have a situation where the BMI rate court judge has found against, or has ruled against what DOJ came out with in their closing statement. ASCAP has not run to the ASCAP rate court judge for a similar ruling, in part because ASCAP doesn't believe that the ASCAP rate court judge may be fair or rule in a similar manner. So you've now got this disparity. There's an opportunity for an appeal. Joe, what's the status of that? So um, there are different departments within the Department of Justice that, that determine whether to proceed um, at the trial court level and at the appellate level. Uh, the, um, 
because the different part departments have to consider whether to take an appeal, um, the government typically has 60 days to, to notice an appeal, uh, whereas a, a typical litigant would only have 30 days. So, so that 60-day window will, will run about mid-November. Um, and even then, we may just see a placeholder notice of appeal that the department would, would put into place just to preserve their right to, to ultimately decide to appeal. So let's, let's now, what are the implications of this? David, let's bring you in here for a minute. Record labels invest lots of money in recording artists. Uh, you're coming, let's say a label's coming out with a new song by Beyonce, they want to promote it. All of a sudden, performance rights, let's say they're not available. Let's say someone's holding back, you've got a co-owner of a work with a very significant interest. The record labels have been noticeably silent on these issues, at least publicly. Privately, they'll, they'll say one thing. Publicly, they don't say anything because there are ties between the major labels and some of the major publishers. You're not maybe as constrained. So what's an inside view of what goes on at the record labels regarding this issue of split work licensing? And does it potentially harm the investments that the record companies are making in trying to bring music to market? Um. Let me start with the last piece first. I think in the long run, yes, there's there's harm, um, and uh, you know an inside view is kind of hard because uh, I've been out now about eighteen months, and this has been actually I think it's evolved considerably inside the companies, um, but the the real the real issue here, you know, this it's an incredible discussion. That you guys have no idea how fortunate you are to have just been attendance uh, to this discussion. It's incredibly fascinating. But if you take it up um, a couple of levels and you talk to talk to the issue of where, what companies, what innovators, and what investors will bring the music industry collectively and the artists and writers collectively in the coming 20 years, bring them, you know, the kinds of growth that one would hope to expect. And this, while fascinating and incredibly um, entertaining, intellectually stimulating for lawyers and others, it's a terrible foreboding sign that um, as hard as it is today to get music licenses from record labels, music publishers, and PROs, and not just in this country, but all over the world, and everything now is, is global. So if you want to compete against Google, Amazon, Apple, um, and others that are large enough to undertake the litigation risks, to spend two years figuring out whether they can litigate and then settle. This, the landscape's, it's ugly. So the, the inside the record companies, they have to protect, the major companies have to protect their major publishers to some degree. Um, and so there's sort of an obvious alignment there. So you're not gonna see major labels coming out against any of this. Uh, they're gonna keep their mouths shut, um, most of them. Um, I think that's smart in one way. In another way, I'd like to see more leadership. How in the world are we going to grow and innovate in this space? It's impossible to get licenses these days. I mean, and I know now for a fact, um, having been on the other side fighting, you know, on the one hand, I was the tip of the spear for Universal Music Group on the opposite side of startups. But on the other hand, when the startup leaves the room, I'm the one at the company the tip of the spear internally to try to get deals done, which believe me, if you think it's hard to get deals done with the record companies, it's just as hard to get the deal done within the record companies. So what does all this mean? I think, you know, in fact, 
I think we have to keep our eye on the ball as a group, as lawyers, as as policy. When Joe talks about policy and the policy of the DOJ, I mean, some of that is the most important discussion that remains kind of at the bottom of the page or last in line to talk about. Um, not only does licensing efficiency have to be much, much, uh, well, much more efficient. It's not efficient at all. So licensing has to become incredibly efficient. And then the copyright monopolies uh, weigh in, and you have to really ask yourself if you're a monopolist uh, in the copyright area, is the is the right thing to do to leave almost no margin for companies to make a, a, a real business, to grow their business, to market their business? Is that is that healthy long term? We're or, we're gonna, we're going to get there. All right. So that so that, that, that's take what, us down that this, took us down a different road. Let, yeah. let me ask Christiana a question. Um, if the DOJ requires, let, let's say the DOJ wins on appeal when it goes up to the Second Circuit and Judge okay. Stanton is overturned, and 100% licensing is now the norm, is there any evidence in the marketplace that a legitimate service, a Pandora, a Spotify, an Apple, a Google, an Amazon, is going to get PRO licenses from, or performance licenses from one PRO, or isn't it the case that they're still going to go to ASCAP BMI and CSAC, and very likely GMR, to get the rights that they need. So this, the world is ending, is that a little bit of hyperbole? I mean, as an attorney, we always recommend with any clients that need to get public performance rights that you get the blanket licenses from everyone, because then you're covered and you don't have to pay an attorney to double check and clear every single name on a list, um, which is very taxing and time consuming. So in theory, most likely they will still continue to get blanket licenses from each outfit, but I think there is, a, you know, a serious risk that it's going to cut prices. You know, I mean, they don't have to go to everybody. So if you've got a CSAC or a GMR that's charging a, a lot for the same license that they could get from ASCAP or BMI, they might, they might start, you know, picking and choosing. Steve. Let's turn it around. What happens if the Second Circuit sides with Judge Stanton, upholds his ruling, and fractional licensing becomes the norm? I think it's public that Pandora has agreements right now with ASCAP and BMI that run for several years. Yep. But previously, Pandora kind of was the impetus for a lot of this because publishers did withdraw. And there are findings about what they did, allegations of collusion, significant increases in pricing. What would you anticipate happening to the extent you can talk about it if fractional licensing were to become the norm and that 2% rights holder or 10% rights holder could now hold up your being able to play a song by Beyonce or another big artist that the labels want you to play? Uh, the, the short and easy answer is that uh, if we start getting fractional licenses from the PROs, uh, music comes down. Pure, simple start to finish, that's what happens. Um, I'm the general counsel of a publicly traded company, and I cannot afford for my company to play music for which I don't have 100% of the rights to play it. And if there is anybody out in the world that has a right in a song that I play, whether it's you know a recording right or whether it's a composition right, and I can't either clear that right fractional, whole, whatever it is, or I don't have a path to clear that right within a reasonable degree of certainty, 
then I can't play that song. I won't play that song. Uh, because there's you know, a statutory damages regime. And if I know that I don't have all the rights to play a song, then I'm a willful infringer. And statutory damages um, are you know, market cap crushing at the scale of the music that we play. I get fractional licenses from the publishers that I do direct deals with. And I, you know, we've got deals literally with thousands and thousands of publishers. I've hired two consulting firms to try to tell me how much of my music catalog that all of these different publishing organizations own. They're able to do that within a reasonable degree of certainty. But if I don't have a blanket license from a PRO that helps me sweep up the rest of all of the rights holders with a blanket license that comes with certainty and indemnification for the music that I can play, then for every song that I can't identify 100% of the rights owners, that song comes off the service. That song doesn't get played. None of those songwriters get compensated for those plays. And with the record labels, because record labels typically get compensated at something like 5x, what songwriters get compensated for, the record labels suffer as well at an even higher, higher rate. So let's switch from the PRO consent decrees to another issue where there's liability and litigation, something called pre-72 sound recordings. David, uh, what is a pre-72 sound recording, and why is it treated differently than post-72 sound recordings? So those are recordings that uh, don't fall under the federal copyright laws. <clears throat> and so uh, that's, I mean, s simple as that. So pre-72 sound recordings eligible for statutory licensing under the Copyright Act? No. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the, that's where the challenge came in, um, and uh, largely because the labels were having an incredibly difficult time um, getting other things that they wanted, uh, getting successful results in other areas. Um, Does that, is that a euphemism for more money? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can think of it that way, um, but really, I'm just his were, interpreter. Were, it's not really money. It, it's sort of um, equity. No, you, not a, <laughs> advances, not minimum guarantees. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a there's a there's a litany of woes uh, we could get into. Um, by the way, all of those are, are relevant. I think the the industry has done a um, some significant damage um, that's hard to undo. Um, but with respect to pre-72, it's really, you know, if you can't win elsewhere, what else were you going to do? Well, let's try to figure out how to, you know, oh, there, here's, a, here's an aspect that we, uh, we, they, the music labels, uh, would find a way to wedge themselves into to achieve a result that, you know, was really purely technical. Of course, copyright law is one of the most technical areas. Uh, it's a very, it was a sort of a nice try kind of thing, you know, if they want to really leverage the maximum amount of their leverage possible to try to get the result they want. The problem is, is that, you know, either you're in or you're out. I mean, if you're not going to get paid the compulsory license as a service that's, uh, uh, if you're a pre-72 writer and you're not going to get paid, that's, that's also problematic. So the question is, what's going to happen from here out? Um, will pre-72 be, you know, federalized and brought into the statutory scheme? of compulsory licensing, and I, I don't know where that's going to go, but there's no particular reason why it couldn't. Right. So Pandora has a distinction, again, of being a defendant in some of the pre-'72 sound recordings, along with 
most major broadcasters and SiriusXM. Steve, can you just, I don't want to go too deep into the details on that litigation, but what's the general status? There were lawsuits brought yep. in federal courts about state law violations. That's right. And there were some rulings on both sides. So just very high level. Yeah. Um, so we are um, currently defending, I think it's uh, seven different lawsuits um, brought by three, I'm sorry, four now different uh, nominal class action plaintiffs uh, by three different class action plaintiffs law firms uh, in five different jurisdictions, five different states. Uh, and uh, those lawsuits are all in various stages of hibernation at the moment. Um, the two that have gone the farthest is uh, there is a case in New York that is pending against SiriusXM. Uh, that resulted in a district court judgment uh, against SiriusXM, in other words, finding that there was a state law right uh, of copyright in a sound recording that could be, uh, that could be violated. Uh, and that went up on appeal to the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit has now kicked it over to the New York Supreme Court. Um, similarly, in California, uh, we got sued uh, by, the, uh, by the same group, um, and we used a uh, clever... Uh, procedural maneuver, maybe a little too clever, but a clever procedural maneuver um, in the, uh, uh, in the uh, district court, um, which had previously ruled against SiriusXM uh, in the similar, in the, the same proceeding, uh, ruling that uh, in that case, also under California law, there was a right of um, uh, public performance and sound recordings. Um, and uh, we got that one kicked up to the Ninth Circuit. So the Ninth Circuit is scheduled to hear that oral argument at the beginning of December. Um, there is a reasonable chance that the Ninth Circuit may kick it to the California Supreme Court. Uh, and the various proceedings in other jurisdictions have, already been, has, have either been stayed officially pending decisions from the Second Circuit slash New York Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit, perhaps California Supreme Court, um, or they're sort of being slow rolled uh, because uh, I think in those circumstances, the district court judges really do realize that um, you know persuasive precedent even if it's not within uh, you know their you know, direct jurisdictional line persuasive precedent is going to come out of New York and California on these matters so for recording artists does anyone here own a copyright in a pre-72 sound recording really whole a whole catalog would you mind saying who you are or who you're with Okay. Okay. So there's lots of, for people who follow it, how many people have followed the pre-72 sound recording litigations and discussions? So one of the things that the labels always talk about is the fact that it's about the artist, the artist, the artist. They want to protect the artist. Dirty secret is many of those artists are still not recouped. So if the labels have to do direct deals on pre-72 sound recordings, still going to be subject to recoupment, no guarantee of 50-50 split of the royalties the way you have under the statutory license. So the licenses that are administered by Sound Exchange where the royalties are paid in and then you've got direct payments to the artists. Uh, Christiane, why, why couldn't or why shouldn't Congress step in here and say something along the lines of, if you are performing a pre-72 sound recording so long as you pay royalties 
at the same rate as post-72 sound recordings. Mm -hmm. You can pay that to sound exchange. You could be immune from liability, and artists will get 50% of the royalties. Nothing prevents Congress from doing this, correct? Nothing prevents Congress from doing this. It's, it's time. Uh, things move slowly, and we keep putting Band-Aids on things, and I think Congress should step in and clarify a lot of this stuff. David, are you aware of the record labels getting behind any kind of legislation to permit pre-72 sound recordings to be utilized under federal law? That would surprise me. Okay. Unfortunately. So it should be done. It's, it's, it's a no-brainer. I mean, it absolutely should be done. Now, Steve, you, Pandora has lots of music that they play on channels. That's pre-72. You were sued. It's public that you, Pandora, entered into a settlement. Mm -hmm. um, that settlement has an expiration date, though. What is Pandora's contingency for when that settlement expires? You've also got direct deals, so maybe they're covered by that. Um, but legislatively, is that something that Pandora would like to see as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, we have um, you know, mitigated our exposure uh, from pre-72, uh, first by settling with the, uh, the major record labels um, on, uh, for their pre-72 catalogs uh, last uh, October. And that basically covered about 90% of the pre-72 music that we were spinning on Pandora. Um, and since that time, we have just in the last uh, month done direct deals uh, for sound recordings with uh, um, dozens of labels, including uh, major labels going forward. And those are undifferentiated as to you know, when the recording was made. Uh, so we are covered for pre-72 going forward under those direct deals. So um, we are left with about 10% uh, you know, of the pre-72 music we play. That music is uh, less than 5% of the music that we spin on Pandora and uh, sort of steadily decreasing as we go, as more music is added to the you know, post-72 uh, category. And so uh, what we're absolutely looking for is a chance for, uh, you know, pre-72, uh, what we call legacy or uh, heritage artists, uh, to be paid in the same kind of equitable, fair, and efficient way that uh, post-72 recordings have been paid for ever since the advent of the statutory license. Um, you know, the problem is that if I tried to settle all the remaining cases, um, I would have to settle them state by state. Um, and there is absolutely no uh, mechanism for setting what that rate might be. It could be higher than what post-72 folks are getting under the statutory license. It could be lower than what post-72 recordings are getting under the, uh, under the statutory license. Um, and I don't think anybody would stand up and say that that's fair. Uh, so I think it, it's absolutely high time, and we're actually working with members of Congress to try to get bills introduced uh, that would provide for um, pre-72 sound recordings to be paid uh, at the same rates and through the same mechanism through sound exchange. Uh, it's, a, it's the most efficient payment mechanism in the entire recording industry. And uh, as Gary said before, half the, um, uh, half the royalties for those sound recording performances go directly to the artists uh, and go around the side of label recruitment. So let's uh, switch gears again now. How many of you work in-house at a technology company? How many of you represent rights owners, either record labels, recording artists, or songwriters? Okay, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about some litigations that may have implications, largely for people who work at technology companies. So the case of UMG Recordings versus Escape Media Group, or Grooveshark. Um, David, first, you, did you have dealings with 
the folks at Groove Shark when you were at UMG? Yes. Uh, did they ever do a deal with Universal during your tenure? No, not that I recall. Okay, and what did Groove Shark offer as a product? The first thing they did was uh, they were they were offering uh, you know free music like everybody else, but they were actually taking money from customers and uh, holding it in escrow in quotes. Um, we had already had you know years and years and years of uh, Napster and its progeny, um, but this was a first when I heard from one of my my uh, business development executives. Um, uh, about this in a meeting, I, I stopped the meeting and I, I just, just shook my head. I said, "Can you please just repeat that? They're actually taking the money from the customers." So that was a that was how they started. Um, you know, as far as I as far as I can tell you that the 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 day these days are go those days are gone largely because the marketplace and companies that have persevered through the challenges to actually grow a business. Um, have made piracy less interesting. Um, legitimate music consumption is much, much more, you know, uh, fun. Um, I, I credit Pandora quite a bit for um, for bringing music uh, in a legal way to, in a fun way, to the masses. So piracy is just less, less critical. But that Groove Shark thing was sort of an anomaly even among pirates. And Christiane, what what are some of the key findings? So they offered music unauthorized by rights owners. Um, right. They tried to rely upon certain DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Safe Harbors. They were trying to, to rely on the DMCA and the Safe Harbor Act uh, like a YouTube would, that there's an ability to do a takedown notice for copyright owners that aren't interested in this. Their business model was really based on a, let's build something cool, uh, they will come, you know, a very field of dreams mentality. One of the problems with that is this wasn't exclusively user-generated content like you would need under Safe Harbor. So what they were doing is they had their co-owners and a bunch of employees that were required to upload uh, a ton of copyrighted music, and they knew they were doing it. Um, so bad. That I'm going to play Donald Trump now. I'm just going to annotate as you talk. I'm going to say, <laughs> bad. No, That's wrong. bad. <laughs> My mic's wrong. <laughs> no, no. Um, so... <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> God, how'd she do it? <laughs> Completely derailed me. Um, so yeah, anyway, the employees, the Cohen owners are uploading all this music. And um, so they got sued individually, um, saying, well, you should have known better. And they were found, um, uh, the, the co-owners um, of Groove Shark were individually found liable for massive scale willful copyright infringement um, and for requiring their employees to do this. So um, I guess the, and obviously Groove Shark shut down as a result, IP was, was sent back um, to the copyright owners. So the moral of the story, I guess, for you tech companies is be very careful with the DMCA and there is definitely this I guess this uh, understanding among a lot of tech companies, like build something cool, ask forgiveness later. Sometimes it works out, but very rarely. Um, build something cool and try and do it right. And that's, I say that with a grain of salt because how the hell do you do it right with this mess of laws that we've concocted? So another situation where individuals were sued in their individual capacity. So there was a company, Ardio, and Pandora acquired certain assets of RDO, but out of bankruptcy. And 
following the bankruptcy filing, there, were, there was a complaint filed by Sony Music against the individual executives, three individual executives of RDO. Um, and there were allegations, and it's complicated, you can go and read the complaint, but there were statements that RDO owed certain money to Sony Music. And during the course of negotiations, Sony agreed to extend payment deadlines. And then after the fact, they alleged that they had been lied to or misled or, in legal terminology, fraud in the inducement. And a lawsuit was filed. David, when maybe you can just comment on not specifically this fact pattern, but when you're negotiating with someone, whether it's a new agreement or a renewal, and you're asking someone to give you certain information, there is an expectation that you're going to be told the truth, but there are different ways to maybe explain the truth. How are you dealing with that when you're a representative of a licensor? And then flip it around and imagine that you're, an ex you're representing a company that is having a tough time and maybe needing to file for bankruptcy protection. So How do you struggle with that? Well, first, let me say, I mean, I, I'm not familiar enough with the actual facts of the case that I would opine on this particular one, because it, I think, is very fact-based, right? So it, depending on what was actually said and who made what representations and what was their authority to do so, uh, th those are all, you know, extraordinarily important. Um, but, you know, um, <laughs> the major labels, uh, they can take care of themselves, um, and you know, because they got, somebody got left uh, left holding the bag, right? So their competitors got paid, but they didn't, you know, these are the kinds of uh, things that happen, right? There's this human kind of competitive emotion at the tops of the labels and sometimes throughout the organization about, well, how could, how could that, how could they get paid and we didn't? You know, there were plenty of times, uh, well, maybe not plenty, but there were several times that I can recall where we were dealing with a company when I was at Universal, um, uh, doing their digital work where uh, a company uh, like Playlist, for example, uh, got a very large check from Sony, but we didn't get ours yet. That caused a phenomenal amount of angst and, you know, finger pointing and, you know, why did they get paid and we didn't and we didn't get paid enough and they got paid more. I mean, you know, it's, it's obnoxious to even think about in a context where... Not that there's collusion among the labels ever. Oh no! Actually, you know that's a, I can dis, I can dispel that absolutely here and now forever, right? If these are the worst colluders on the planet, okay? <laughs> if they're colluding, you know they're worse than you think. Um, and I assure you, they are not stupid, right? Except they're for their universal insistence on MFNs. Well, uh, which is we, the best collusion on the planet. We, we should we should actually talk about MFNs. I, well, I, they're that's a very it's a, it's a good topic, but I, I, I think for it's, next year. <laughs> it's it's a good topic, but I'll 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 say this just about MSN since since you brought it up, there are many things since the creation of these agreements uh, with with uh, some no degree of coincidence uh, that I actually hired Gary to be uh, one of the lawyers outside to help me create these agreements in the first place twenty nineteen years ago. And I'm atoning ever since. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, atone ever since. However, one of the things that is important, especially if you're negotiating um, with record companies and music publishers, the policy rationale for why we came up with these points, whether it's MFNs or whether it's per plays or whether it's this, that, or the other thing, a, a guaranteed share of marketing space. Why did that come up? 
Why? Because I didn't want to pay co-op in the online world. Me. I said, I'm not doing that anymore. I, do you agree, boss? Do you agree, boss? Yes, everybody agreed. Let's not pay co-op. These, but the rationale for that is long Can you just explain changed. what's co-op so that people who don't know? So you, essentially, if you're selling a CD to, to Walmart and you want them to advertise it, put it in the front, you're going to discount that CD, give them a marketing budget. It's essentially reducing your wholesale price. So, uh, but it's a forced reduction in a way because you're, you're basically having to pay for front placement or the end caps. So the end cap in a, uh, on Pandora would be like getting on the home screen, you know, below the fold or whatever. It's a homepage placement. Think of it that way. But the, the, the labels receive that in as part of the overall value proposition. And they'll argue that's completely fair. And I'm not going to say what's fair or not. But the policy rationale behind a lot of these points, including MFNs, was back in the you know, 19 years ago, 18 years, 17 years ago, 15 years ago. So one should really, uh, when, when arguing and negotiating with these companies, really dive into why is it you think you need this? Is it because this is some experimental uh, business model? You don't know. You're going to eat into you know the, your your real business over here is going to be crushed if you don't have an MFN. No. So I think part of the problem is um, some of the th policy rationales that existed so long ago remain today as a hardcore uh, uh, obligations and or restrictions on behalf of the licensees and digital music service providers. They are our customers, right? Think about the customer, the fan end customer and the business customer. And the industry generally needs to do a 100% better job focusing on the customer to grow the customer's business. If 70 cents of every dollar and whatever it is for Pandora, I don't know, but it's, it's huge, 50 cents of every dollar, whatever it is, is going back to the rights owners collectively, then why... Are the rights owners so blind to providing a healthy margin to their customers? And that big picture runs through all of the complexity we've discussed here today. And I think it points out, even as um, uh, Pandora, who you know is one of the leaders in this industry, and you hear today about all that they've had to go through. And now imagine somebody, you're, you're a venture capitalist. Raise your hand if you're a venture capitalist. Private equity. Anyway, so there's one brave soul here. Okay. And this he's a good soul, one, too. Yeah, this brave soul, this brave soul uh, to create a competitor to, uh, to Pandora has to realize that, uh, or to invest in a competitor or invest in a new service that does something slightly different, has to go through all of this. And that, to me, um, runs, through, r runs through the theme of, of this and all the other panels here okay, at the conference. Okay, so we, where I want to leave time for questions, but... There's a big issue that I just want to hit very quickly, and that's Section 115, Mechanical Licensing and Litigation. Uh, Section 115 of the Copyright Act allows someone to record a, a musical work, a composition that has been previously released with the authority of the copyright owner. So the publisher controls first use, and then other people can make a cover, and digital music services can rely upon Section 115 to clear rights for the underlying musical work when it's reproduced and distributed as part of an interactive service. There has been a bunch of litigation against Spotify, against Google, a bunch of other services. Christiane, can you very quickly and at a very high level explain what those lawsuits are about? 
Well, I can talk about the Lowry and Farrick uh, suits a bit, which um, have been combined now. Um, so David Lowry had sued for, I think, $150 million as a class action. Melissa Farrick came out maybe a month later for $200 million. All of the issues, um, this was against Spotify, I believe, and the issue was um, that Spotify, because on a massive scale, they were, they were working with Harry Fox, which is a licensing agency, sending notice of intent, um, as you would under Section 115, to secure these rights. They were even holding back monies for people that they didn't know who to pay. The problem becomes Harry Fox Agency doesn't represent every single publisher in the world, and there was a, a large handful of people that were not getting paid their mechanicals, so the class action lawyers came out and uh, said, rawr, and then Spotify came out and said, settle, so, um, uh, with the, with the and, NMPA, and so they worked and out. And NMPA is the National Music Publishers yes. Association. So a large portion of the publishers, um, I think 96% of their members have signed onto this side settlement agreement with them, um, and the question then becomes, is this going to gut the class action um, for the Lowry and Farrick lawsuits? You know, I, I, on one side of the spectrum, you can't really take on these types of cases without a class action because it, you're dealing with pennies. Um, you know, on the other hand, then you, you also have these lions that are just coming out and looking for a buck all the time. So anyway, it's, it's interesting what's going to happen with that. So w we only have five more minutes, but... Lunch is after this, so I'm going to run a little bit late so we can do questions. But if you do feel you need to leave, please, I won't be offended if you get up. Uh, related to that litigation, there's also a rate proceeding before a tribunal called the Copyright Royalty Board. And that is to set rates for the use of musical works as part of interactive services and physical products. Um, Joe, can you give a brief update on where we are in that proceeding. These are two-year proceedings, so it started at the beginning of this year. There are going to be certain filings. Uh, there has been no negotiated settlement so far. Uh, Joe, where are we with this? So um, the, the way that these proceedings work is that written direct cases go in in writing, um, and, and then there is a subsequent discovery period. There's a rebuttal case that also goes in in writing, and then a hearing is held uh, before the copyright royalty judges in Washington, D.C., and, and then they set a rate. It will be by the end of next year, they will set a rate that will hold for 2018 to 2022 under the um, Section 115 compulsory license. Um, written direct cases are due November 1st, so, so we're about to kind of see the culmination of everybody's efforts in presenting their, their positions. Um, it's, it's kind of a unique proceeding at this stage because the past two rounds, so the last 10 years, have been handled under industry-wide settlement agreements, and, and there were kind of some grand bargains that were struck. Um, a lot of streaming services, for example, don't acknowledge that there is a Section 115 license required for, for streaming activities, that there, there's no reproduction, no compensable reproduction that's being made in connection with those streams, and that rather they should just pay public performance licenses because that's the activity that, that on-demand streaming resembles. Um, anyway, that that was subject to some conflict. The Copyright Office um, weighed in um, to some extent, or, or they conducted a rulemaking um, that sought to establish that there was, in fact, a mechanical right associated with, with on-demand streaming activity. 
the in entire industry came together and said, okay, we'll say that there is a right um, as part of the settlement, and that right has to be licensable under the compulsory license in Section 115. And they structured it in a way that it was kind of an all-in rate that you would pay to cover public performance rights and mechanicals. Um, it, that's, it's a complicated formula. It's subject to all kinds of floors and minima and whatnot. And, and that's what's really coming to a head here because all of the activity on the PRO side has led to increasing public performance rates that have started to trigger some of the various floors in the minima that are in the rate formula that was previously agreed upon. And, and so that's taking the effective rate over the, the initial all-in rate that was agreed to. And um, that threatens to disturb the economics of a lot of the streaming businesses that have grown up in the past five years. Steve, Pandora's a participant in that proceeding. That's right. Likelihood of a settlement, you think? Uh, I remain optimistic. <laughs> uh, there is a mandatory settlement period coming up in December. Uh, after direct cases have been filed. I think once everyone gets a chance to look at everyone else's direct case, um, that would be a really good time for people to come back to the bargaining table and see if we can put something together that spares us all uh, rebuttal cases and trials and the rest of it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay optimistic through the holidays. <laughs> okay, why don't, uh, why don't we start going to some questions here. Do we have a microphone? Okay. Yeah. And state your name, please. I state your name. Uh, John Rudolph. So I've got a question. If there, you have a legal view on Frank Ocean, for example, there's been some ideas that maybe the going exclusive is there's some legal challenges to that. Does anybody have a, on the panel have a view to that? Because I, it seems with Major Lazer did something last year, Frank Ocean just recently. You've got folks that are coming, and the services seem to be challenging the idea that you can go exclusive, or at least threatening the idea that there's some legal idea that voids that idea, I should say. Well, you, you cannot prevent a statutory licensee from using a sound recording that's been commercially released. For an interactive service, and I'll let uh, David talk about it, um, Steve may not be able to talk about your current label agreements, but there are typically restrictions where a label can have a holdback. Um, so Pandora under the statutory license and iHeart can... As a, as a clarification, I'll talk about Frank holding the statute. Right? His record. Yeah. So he, right, so he's the individual sound recording copyright owner for his own music. Right. 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 But on the sound recording side, David? So, yeah, on the sound recording side, I mean, the, he's got the exclusive right to, to exploit. So, I, you know, I'm not sure if I, I might be missing something. Uh, but to me, that's fairly straightforward, um, you know, in, in, in under our regime. Yeah, he, it wouldn't seem to raise a competition issue as well unless he's colluding. I mean, well, that's what uh, was being said. yeah, if he's colluding with the service. that there's a competition issue, right? So, I mean, look, saying he's colluding with the service may be what was being argued on a legal standpoint. I don't know, I didn't hear those terms, but I, if you're not familiar with it, just might wanna look at it, because it's a pretty relevant topic and you're seeing right. more folks going this going this direction. Yeah, I'm just it, not sure what the collusion would be. I mean, right. I, they're I, not competitors, I, they're, yeah. they're, you know, and it, is it a price fixing issue like Apple Books? It, you know, you need to define a market and market share. So it, 
on the face of it, and, and I'm not a litigator. We've got two litigators here, um, but I'm not seeing that. <laughs> we had a question here. Um, so a lot of the services here, um, and I, I'm an independent musician as well, a lot of the services here focus on independent, independent musicians who are basically making their own works and then going to distribution services like DistroKid. Um, how does it impact people like that? So like the, like the bulk of the long tail of the music industry that do isn't backed by you know, the lawyers and doesn't, you know, doesn't have that type of support. Is it impacted at all? Well, I don't think the laws are always built to protect the independent artist. Um, I mean, on the plus side, you usually own your own sound recording and you know you have the negotiation powers, but there are things like under the performing rights organizations, you're not gonna be getting paid at your concert venues. You know, it's not gonna be part of the the hand, you know, it goes into a different separate pocket as far as, you know, these widespread payouts. You're, you're not getting the same access to money, I think, that um, people under a label or under the bigger, um, the bigger players are getting. Um, I, I think that's, that's the real deficiency there, but, you know, the laws are set up to protect you. I think the business hasn't really caught up yet, so. There are a couple of bright spots, though. Um. <laughs> yeah. uh, one is that uh, you know internet streaming services are now playing more and a wider variety of artists than ever before, um, and so uh, artists that are not necessarily backed by major labels are finding an audience um, through Pandora, through YouTube, through Spotify, through all of the, uh, the distribution services that exist now. Um, for example, terrestrial radio plays a few thousand different artists per month, um, and on Pandora, I can't speak for the others, we play over 130,000 different artists per month. Uh, so there is a way of addressing the long tail. The other side of it, I think, is a good news. A bit of good news is that the uh, statutory license um, and the way that that's handled, um, from at least a sound recording side, uh, through Sound Exchange, uh, means that um, you know checks are being cut, um, and this is true through the PROs as well. Um, without you know 50% of the of the licenses that we pay in, both to the PROs and to Sound Exchange, get cut directly to songwriters uh, and their affiliated publishers without going through the big. Uber publishers uh, for their recruitment models. Um, so, you know, we hear from uh, artists um, that uh, they look forward to their checks from Sound Exchange, from ASCAP, from BMI, and that's a meaningful part of their uh, compensation, a meaningful part of the way that they make a living. Um, and that, uh, um, you know, there are many musicians now who are able through streaming services um, to not have to have record label deals and still be able to earn a good living. So. I hope that continues. Uh, it's I, I know we're past time, but let's. We've got a question there. I don't see Debbie Newman in the room. Where's <laughs> Debbie? She's not here. The women are busy in the other room. Hi, uh, my name is Michael Winger. I'm with the Recording Academy. Um, could you all would you all uh, be able to comment on some of the legislation that's currently pending in com in Congress, particularly the Fair Play Fair Pay Act, and any insight you have on Chairman Goodlatte's copyright reform tour and the comments that have all been going on around there? We talked about it in the green room. Uh, Steve, do you want to? Uh, yeah, we have uh, actually been working with um, Congressman Nadler on fair pay, fair play, fair play, fair pay. I forget which one's first. FP2, we like that one better. Um, specifically on the pre-72 prong of that, um, 
that, uh, you know, the, the other prong is, uh, you know, radio pays, um, and that's not something that, uh, that we've been involved uh, with the congressman in, uh, in working on. Um, and then there are a couple other issues around that bill as well. Um, I think that the gestalt around D.C. is that there are a number of different uh, standalone bills that are out there. Um, and that they are all sort of in a you know holding pattern, waiting for um, the Chairman uh, Goodlatte, uh, who's chairman of the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives, uh, and has been promising for a long time a sort of you know reevaluation and um, a rewrite of at least some portions of the uh, the copyright the copyright laws. Um, we are keenly interested in that topic, and we have been, uh, you know, anxious to hear what's going to come out of the chairman's office for a long time. And as I sit here today, we are no closer to knowing what that's going to be than uh, than we were, you know, months ago. And the Bots Act, if you want to just give. Oh a yeah, <clears throat> the one piece of legislation that is moving uh, is that uh, uh, both across the aisle and across the chambers of uh, of Congress, um, it looks like that uh, there is a um, a music ticketing. Um, piece of legislation that's going to move uh, that will actually um, bring within the jurisdiction of the Federal Trade Commission uh, these um, computerized bots um, that are that go and you know buy up lots and lots of tickets uh, to shows when they're first announced, uh, then kick those tickets back to uh, promoters in the secondary market, um, and that seems to be moving um, you know with amazing speed considering it's Congress. Um, and could go to the president's desk in lame duck. So there is at least some motion on copyright-related, music-related issues within Congress. Was there right here? I was wondering if um, you had any um, knowledge or information on, um, I know there's been an issue with um, when, say, uh, Spotify or Pandora um, gets uh, licenses from the, um, like, uh, the publisher or the... Um, label where it's an overall license and thus the the label can avoid uh, paying out the artists um, individually. Um, Wait, what? So an overall license, who, who is the licensor in that relationship with Pandora or Spotify? A sound recording copyright owner or a musical work? Uh, sound recording. Um, and are you, are you talking about a scenario where a record label grants a license and agrees to cover the publishing as well. Um, yeah, let's use let's uh, let's say that. Um, God, this is <laughs> I can't actually remember the details of this. Um, okay, why, sorry. Why <laughs> okay, um, if there are yeah. no other, uh, I'm not sure there's a question there, or you can maybe find someone after the fact. Yeah, never mind. Oh, okay, Whitney. Okay, so they're not required to because it's subject to contract. Federal law provides that the contract between the label and the artist governs. It's not subject to a statutorily mandated split. However, so, Gary, there, but you might mention the, the agreement with the labels uh, at Sound Exchange to treat voluntary agreements that would otherwise fall under the statutory license accordingly. So I, I don't know if those are still in effect. I'm not sure. I believe they are. Yeah, they may. There may be things Not around for long. That. Maybe. <laughs> uh, so thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully you learned something. Thanks. Mm -hmm.